ladies and gentlemen, we are live today on October 1st, 2015. This is International Longevity Day, and this event is one of many events, celebrations, demonstrations, discussions that are occurring throughout the world. This is a panel in conjunction with MILE, the Movement for Indefinite Life Extension, on the question of how can life extension become as popular as the war on cancer. My name is Janati Stolyarov II. I am the author of Death is Wrong, the illustrated children's book on indefinite human life extension. I will be the host today for this panel, and we have a very interesting, diverse group of panelists here today, six individuals who have all been extensively involved in activism and advocacy for life extension, who each have their own perspectives to share on the central question. So let me introduce them to you. Uh, we have Adam Alonzi, who is the author of the fiction books Praying for Death, A Zombie Apocalypse, and A Plank in Reason. He is a futurist, inventor, DIY enthusiast, biotechnologist, programmer, molecular gastronomist, consummate dilettante, and columnist at The Indian Economist. He has a blog at adamalonzi.wordpress.com, and he has a podcast website at adamalonzi.libsyn.com. We have Sven Bulteris, who is a founder and member of the board of directors of HEALS, the Healthy Life Extension Society based in Brussels, Belgium. He has worked as a postgraduate researcher at the SENS Research Foundation and at Yale University. Moreover, he is an advisor to the Lifeboat Foundation's A Prize, whose purpose is to put the development of artificial life forms into the open. Then we have Keith Comito a computer programmer and mathematician whose work brings together a variety of disciplines to provoke thought and promote social change. He has created video games, bioinformatics programs, musical applications, and biotechnology projects featured in Forbes and NPR. And Keith is uh, very active right now in advocacy and crowdfunding for life extension research. Uh, he runs the Life Extension Advocacy Foundation and the crowdfunding site Lifespan.io. He just recently concluded the MitoSense uh, research fundraiser, which met its $30,000 goal at Lifespan.io. Uh, Rowan Horn is a philosopher and lecturer on the importance of trying to live forever. He founded the Eternal Life Fan Club in 2012 to encourage fans of eternal life to start being more strategic with regard to this goal. And Rowan and I have had many conversations uh, over the past few years. I have interviewed him, he has interviewed me, and it's always uh, just a great stimulating discussion. BJ Murphy is the editor and social media manager of Serious Wonder. He is a futurist, philosopher, activist, author, and poet. He is an advisory board member for the Lifeboat Foundation and is a writer for IEET, the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. And we also are very pleased to have Elizabeth Parrish, CEO of BioViva, who is a humanitarian, entrepreneur, innovator, and a leading voice for genetic cures. Uh, she is a strong proponent of progress and education for the advancement of regenerative medicine modalities, and she serves as a motivational speaker to 
the public at large for the life sciences. And I also want to note uh, she sits on the board of the International Longevity Alliance, which is the group that has been uh, advancing the idea of International Longevity Day and has been uh, helping to coordinate these presentations worldwide. So welcome everybody uh, to this panel discussion. Uh, I would begin with an expansion upon our central question, and that is what can be done to raise public support for the pursuit of indefinite life extension through medicine and biotechnology to the same level as currently exists for disease-specific research aimed at cancers, heart disease, ALS, and similar large-scale nemeses. So it's not just the popularity of cancer research that we can discuss today, but the popularity of disease-specific research more generally. It seems like the majority of people would agree this is a good thing. It's a good thing to research cures for cancer or ALS or heart disease, and how can we get that same mindset of this is a good thing to be applicable in the eyes of the public to life extension, by which I mean uh, methods, techniques to dramatically increase the average human lifespan and the maximum human lifespan. So Sven, uh, we understand you had some prepared presentation slides you wanted to share. Uh, so let's start with you and with your comments. And our listeners can also download the presentation slides from the event page and the event description if they want to follow along. Uh, yes, thank you very much. So um, this was actually a presentation I made several years ago for a HEALS meeting. And it was after I read uh, this book, um, which I will show later in uh, English. It's a really good book. I recommend everyone to read it. It's about cancer. And it uh, details the history of how cancer research was made popular. Um, so let me start my presentation. Okay, um, can you see this? Yes. Okay. Okay, so this is uh, the book, the English version, The Emperor of All Maladies. Um, it's, uh, you can see the author, I'm not going to try to pronounce it because probably people will laugh with my pronunciation. <laughs> So um, here, this is the history of the National Institutes of Aging that was established in the US. And uh, one lady, Florence Mahoney, played a very important role in, in pushing this struggle to have the institute uh, started. Um, she got uh, support from uh, Mary Lasker, and we will see that name coming up later again and from several other people, such as uh, the Senator Claude Pepper, who, will, who we will see again later on as well. Um, the creation of the National Institute of Aging was opposed by the NIH, and uh, that was probably because they didn't want to have research money funneled away from the NIH budget. Uh, the creation of the NIA was uh, established in 1972, However, it was opposed by the Office of Management and the Budget. Uh, and it, you can read here uh, their statement. It could raise false expectations that the aging process can somehow be controlled and managed through biomedical research. And so following this uh, 
a suggestion by the Office of Management and Budget, President Nixon vetoed the bill. However, in 1974, uh, by pressure from Florence and, and other people, uh, eventually Nixon signed the bill and the National Institute of Aging was uh, established. Um, Okay, so now we will talk about the National Cancer, Insti Cancer Institute in the US. So in 1910, the American Association for Cancer Research uh, convinced President Taft to ask Congress to build a national lab for cancer research. However, uh, it ended up in a failure and nothing got done. In 1972, uh, Senator uh, Needley asked Congress $5 million for uh, looking for uh, research on cancer, and they eventually gave him fifty thousand to please him, uh, while basically not giving him anything that would establish much research at all. He tried again ten years later, and uh, then uh, the National Cancer Institute was founded. However, due to the war that broke out a few years later in Europe, the funding for the institute was completely abolished. And so in 1946-47, he tried again to have funding uh, funneled back to the institute, and his uh, proposal again get, got rejected. So here we can see that uh, it wasn't easy to establish a National Cancer Institute. And so we experience this struggle every day when we try to do it for aging. And we might somehow think there is some type of bias against aging research, but in reality that bias also existed against cancer research a uh, hundred years ago. So uh, then there was this other uh, institution, this non-profit institution, the American Society for the Control of Cancer. And it was an organization by doctors and researchers, and they didn't really do much more than talking with each other. Um, so the they didn't reach out to the general public, they didn't have much of fundraisers going on, and as a result, their budget in 1943 was only $230,000 US a year. Uh, then this lady, who you can see on the picture, uh, Mary Woodward Lasker, got involved, and she was a society lady, uh, and she know, knew a lot of uh, important people. Um, and. Uh, she started writing articles in Reader's Digests, um, trying to attract uh, people's attention and to get funding for this society. And in one month, she raised 300,000 US dollars compared to the budget before her, which was only 230,000 over the whole year. She hired a publicity expert and she also changed the board away from doctors and researchers to business people, movie producers, publicity uh, agents, lawyers, people from the pharmaceutical industry and so on. Uh, so she brought together many, many more different people with different backgrounds who could help to reach out and um, uh, you know, share to their network uh, information about cancer research. And eventually the name got changed to the American Cancer Society. And to give you an idea of one of their outreaches they did, they spread 9 million flyers, 50,000 posters, 1.5 million stickers, uh, 165,000 collection boxes to raise funds, 
3,000 displays. And here you can see the result of that promotion campaign. So the line represents the time when Maria Lasker became involved before her, the budget, as I already said, was 230,000 US dollars. It increased to $832,000 one year later. Then it became over $4 million. And two years after that, it became $12 million. So a gigantic increase in the budget. Now let's look at the National Institute of Aging. Its budget has also been increasing over the years. Uh, in 1996, it had a budget of uh, uh, $451 million. Uh, um, and this is more recently. Uh, in uh, 2003 to 2004, it uh, uh, reached the goal of $1 billion. And uh, in 2012, it's $1.13 uh, $1 billion. So a gradual increase, but very, very slow. And if you then see how that budget is being spent, you can see that of the over $1 billion uh, in 2012, only $166 million, uh, got spent on the aging biology. Uh, and that is actually less than behavioral and social research, um, as you can see below it. The largest amount is spent on neuroscience, which is almost half a billion. Uh, and so Ryavilov uh, said uh, in 2008 that of all the research proposals that were approved by peer review, on, only uh, about 20% actually got funded. So. Switching back to cancer research, um, we see that one of the things that was very important um, for cancer research to be promoted to a general audience and to the politicians was to have a famous scientist standing behind the goal of defeating uh, cancer. And that became Sidney Farber, the person who invented the first chemotherapy drug, aminopterin. And I suggest here that this uh, drug aminopterin, which you see at the top, and the, uh, the you know sign for cancer research, that what this drug uh, did uh, for cancer research, in the sense that it showed people, well, actually, it is possible to uh, cure, or at least to slow down cancer, is uh, what we can do similarly with longevity mutants or with rapamycin for aging research. So aminopterin uh, wasn't a cure for cancer. Um, it uh, only extended lifespan by a few months, but it inspired people. It inspired people that actually cancer is not an insolvable problem. It could be tackled. And uh, the same with rapamycin. It won't solve aging, but it can inspire us to look for cures for aging. Um, so. Here again, in, you can see this is just before 1970, uh, where the big obstacle for the fight against cancer is the severe uh, lack of money uh, that they had. And so um, here, this is one famous uh, ad that appeared in the newspaper that was very important um, in um, trying to convince the, the public and convince President Nixon to launch a real war on cancer. And that was um, by pointing out to the president himself in the newspaper that 
you can cure cancer. And so, um, you know, if he then didn't want to do it, he, he will basically say he didn't want to can cure cancer if he didn't give money to it. So they put him in this difficult situation where he had to accept. Uh, and one person wrote um, that if you were against cancer research, you were against uh, mother, apple pie, and the flag, the typical symbols of the US. Uh, and so that also puts him in a difficult situation. <laughs> so in uh, 1971, the Conquest of Cancer Act was approved by Congress, and that happened after one million letters got sent, uh, urging the, the people in Congress to vote for this act. Uh, this is also coming from the book uh, with which I opened this presentation. And in the book, uh, the author asked, why is it that certain diseases really seem to have a big impact in a certain uh, era? And he says that uh, is coupled to a certain psychological crisis. Like um, cancer, for example, he says, really became famous in the 1970s when uh, the, our fear changed from external fears over a war with the Soviet Union to internal fears. So at, at that point in time, it, it, it was clear that the Soviet Union was losing. Um, and, and so people's fears changed. They weren't so much afraid of the Soviet Union or nuclear war anymore. And they started to think about internal problems. Um, the same happened with AIDS, which coincided with the uh, sexual revolution in the 1980s. There was more sexual freedom, but then this disease turned up. Uh, SARS coincided with the fear of globalization. So somehow certain uh, things that happen in, out, in society outside of, of a certain disease can help catalyze the, the, the public interest in the disease. And so my question is, is there anything happening that we can use uh, as, as a catalyst? to uh, make aging research more popular. And so uh, in more recent times, we, we see that um, several authors, including myself, have argued that aging should be recognized as a disease. Um, and I want to say that um, very soon, well, at the moment, um, the, the WHO is working on the ICD-11, so the International Classification of Diseases. And um, there is a push to at least open a debate to include aging as a disease. Although it may not be successful, it's still going to be good to, to reach out and maybe then for the version afterwards, we could succeed in having aging classified as a disease. Um, and so, yes, that's my presentation. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Sven. Very informative, and it definitely gives us a lot of historical context to think about. Particularly, it was interesting for me how slow, in historical terms, the ramp-up was to this current state where the majority of the public recognizes that fighting cancer is worthwhile. And I wonder if the ramp-up to getting aging recognized as a disease and getting the public to combat it would be any faster than this. I certainly hope so. So, Elizabeth, uh, we would be interested in your thoughts on the central question of the discussion. Oh, sure. So uh, I have a lot of thoughts on that. And thanks, Sven. I think that that's a fantastic introduction to the, the tie-in with cancer. 
so uh, my company, BioViva, we actually consider aging a disease, biological aging. Of course, we want you to get chronologically older, not, just not biologically older. And I kind of wonder if one of the catalysts to this um, could be the Fear of Getting Older campaign that Pfizer actually, believe it or not, started a couple of years ago. So just the sheer cost in getting older and um, the detriment of, of these diseases of aging. So um, aging, treating aging as a disease actually encompasses cancer, so it, it's not not um, independent of that. So cancer and uh, nephropathies and heart disease and heart um, and Alzheimer's and things like that, dementia, these are all aging diseases and so I think that they can be put into one area and we certainly look at all of those. Uh, so we're working on therapeutics that might in fact um, help each one of these and all of them as a whole by looking at the biological aging of the cell. Uh, so I, anyway, I, I think that they tie in. I don't think that they're independently separate. I think that maybe the call to action is the, the demographics and the large costs of uh, aging as a disease. We certainly have hit the silver tsunami in every uh, industrialized country. We're about to hit that worldwide. In 2020, there'll be more people over 65 in the whole world as there are under five and that includes every country in the world and when you think about that the under five become the 15 then the 25 and the 35 as this 65 year, or, year old population ages and they can't afford the health care costs of the over 65. So it's, it's a social and it's demographic and it's a political um, action that I think that we could actually be very successful in um, uh, gaining momentum on. It affects everyone. It's not uh, disease specific, if you will, uh, even though it's aging is a disease specific. I think a lot of cures for childhood disease lies uh, in these therapeutics as well, so it's, it's not just a therapeutic of, of an aging population. Uh, so our company has uh, interesting news that we'll go ahead and, and talk about today on uh, International Longevity Day. We have uh, successfully treated our first subject with not only one but two gene therapies uh, to treat aging as a disease and we await the outcome. We may have no outcome or we may actually have a great outcome to talk about in the following months. Uh, so we have, we are definitely doing our part. Uh, we're a very disruptive little company and um, we're very tenacious and so we're excited uh, to be part of this charge of uh, making a more humane world and a world that hopefully we can uh, live without uh, these diseases that cause a lot of suffering. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. We are honored to have you make your announcement here on this <laughs> panel. Uh, best wishes to you. Uh, I hope that uh, this treatment shows every success in reversing senescence. That would be momentous, I, I think, history-making, uh, if that's the result. And I think one very important point you made to hammer home is by fighting biological aging, we are also fighting all of these specific diseases that people are concerned about, like cancer and heart disease. We greatly reduce the underlying probability of people getting those diseases if they are biologically younger. So I think that's something that every member of the general public should understand. Now, BJ, what are your thoughts on our central question today? Well, uh, my thoughts come from my background in activism. 
you know, I've had to deal with a lot of uh, political pushback on a lot of different issues. And aging is really, it's, it's not uh, different from any other major issue. There's going to be a, uh, a strong hand of bureaucracy that will try and push the war against aging as being something that is not tantamount to uh, fighting against cancer, for example. And this could become a, an issue, and we need some kind of a movement that will emphasize on fighting against aging uh, that isn't tantamount with fighting against diseases like cancer. Because as uh, uh, Sven showed, uh, the war against cancer itself had a lot of political pushback against scientists who are very concerned about uh, a disease that was so dangerous like cancer. And people already knew just how dangerous cancer was. But it wasn't them that was withholding the fight against cancer. It was those in power who would be able to provide the funding and the necessary traction that a movement like that would need at a global scale. And whenever we talk about the fight against aging, uh, as Liz pointed out, you know, this is uh, the same as fighting against every other disease that we have been emphasizing on from cancer to Alzheimer's. Any, any kind of disease that is age-related, we're just trying to couple all of these and put it in as a single movement. And how we do this, you know, there are different ways. And mostly from um, my background, I try looking at it from a more technological point of view uh, in terms of, uh, you know, little you know, little niches of technologies that are helping us, you know, take that incremental step-by-step -step process towards it. You know, but even then, even with these new technologies coming out that are helping us fight against aging, uh, you know, we're still seeing uh, an unfortunate political pushback, and a lot of that is also being uh, guided by the hands of corporations who profit off of uh, certain uh, unfortunate facets of our society that are actually increasing the likelihood of cancer, uh, or at least increasing the susceptibility of cancer to uh, our major populace. And a lot of that has to do with like the tobacco industry. Uh, any kind of technology that comes in that provides a better alternative to uh, tobacco smoking, which is one of the leading causes of cancer, uh, you know, whenever someone pushes something like, uh, you know, the e-cigarette, we've seen that been uh, gaining a lot of traction here lately, but it's also gained a lot of uh, political pushback by the tobacco industry because it does provide an alternative. And there was a recent study by the... Uh, uh, Public Health England, who provided a comprehensive study that showed that uh, e-cigarettes, or is what the what it's called now, is vaping, has a uh, detrimental uh, decline on tobacco smoking, at least in England, and we're seeing the same thing here in the United States. <clears throat> and that actually scares industries like the tobacco industry because they know that people do not want to get cancer. They do not want to get these. Uh, detrimental diseases that will decline their health, it will increase their likelihood of aging at an earlier age. And whenever we are dealing with those kind of issues, uh, we're always going to get that kind of political pushback and corporate pushback. And having a movement that will emphasize on new technologies to help us fight against these things, to have a movement that emphasizes on technological advancement above uh, political bureaucracy will be uh, equally important as that of the technologies themselves. Uh, we're seeing the same thing with technologies like uh, uh, genome editing technologies like CRISPR-Cas9. 
and that is getting a lot of uh, heat on being used in terms of uh, genome editing for uh, our own bio our own biology for human biology because we believe that it would be dangerous and that it would result in uh, increased uh, at least an increased disproportion in terms of uh, revenue between the rich and the poor they make it sound like it's only the rich who are going to benefit from the war against aging which is absurd because the, the war against aging everyone here ages it doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor we are all going to be affected by aging we're all and with aging comes cancer with comes with Alzheimer's diabetes all sorts of different diseases and we already realize just how important it is to fight against the diseases so why not go to the source of the problem why not start combating against aging and it isn't going to you know we're going to have poor people we're going to have rich people it's going to vary throughout the entire uh, demographics so having a movement that will emphasize on this fight and who is willing to fight against political pushback who's willing to fight against corporate pushback that will help us uh, ensure that the fight against aging will be as popular as the fight against cancer very important insights. Thank you, BJ. I do think it is quite worthwhile to delve into the question of large institutional resistance, be it from political institutions or from large private institutions that have a certain entrenched way of operating and that may be threatened by emerging technologies from e-cigarettes to uh, gene therapy. So uh, I think this is an area that we will want to revisit later on in the discussion as well, along with it a corollary question, is it on net beneficial to have large public institutions fund aging research or does that lead uh, anti-aging research to essentially be captured by these types of rigid arrangements that don't want to change and might resist actual innovations. So that's something for everyone to think about, but in the meantime, uh, let's hear some thoughts from Rowan Horn. Okay, everyone hear me? Yes. Okay, cool. So um, the biggest difference, okay, I think in people's minds, as a lot of people here were saying, is the that people, when people think of cancer, and Alzheimer's disease, and other diseases, they think it's possible to actually cure those diseases whereas aging they just think it's completely inevitable right they just think there's no intervention that could ever be done that would actually stop aging so there's a hopelessness so I think one of the big things we have to do to make aging as as a prominent as the war on cancer is just instill hope in people like get educate them that like Aubrey de Grey is doing, you know, so just more of that, and I think that would be very helpful. Um, and also, something like the Immortality Bus, which I've been a part of, I've been very lucky to be a part of the Immortality Bus. It's going around spreading this message, you know, that to, to young people, we're going to colleges. Um, Zoltan Isfan, on this last leg of the tour, he talked to university students, and they really the idea was very well received and it's just inspiring uh, I think targeting the youth of America because a lot of the older people um, they're very kind of close-minded to a lot of things and because uh, they have a lot of there's a lot of religious ideas that I think directly oppose 
at least in the minds of many religious people, uh, it, it, the religious ideas oppose the idea that we should even try to stop aging. Because I've actually talked to a lot of religious people, and the attitude that comes across often is that God almost like wants us to suffer, like it's part of the plan. And this idea is very, um, it's hard to combat because, you know, they, they look at their Bible, they look at their Bible verses, they interpret it in such a way. And so how are you going to argue with that? So um, religion is, is in a lot of ways very destructive to this idea that we should just cure aging, especially because if you cure cancer, you're still going to die. If you, if you cure Alzheimer's disease, you're still going to die. So religious people, that's more acceptable to them. But when it comes to the issue of aging, the big, the big difference here is that if you cure aging, you don't even necessarily have to die. And that runs very opposed, diametrically opposed to the message, the overall message of uh, Christianity, which is that you know, you're, you're, you have to die, like you have to die, and then you're going to face the judgment, like that's a big part of Christianity. And so hopefully as our society becomes more secularized, uh, there's less religious ideas, and I think naturally um, people will seek out an alternative salvation. You know, more and more secular people will be like, hey, you know, we don't want to die, you know. We we want to live, and and naturally we have we I guess we have to. Um, I think we have to inspire people that like the future is going to be so great. It's something you want to be alive for. There's so much dystopian, um, you know, messages in move in movies. We have to counter that and get people like, no, no, no. The future is going to be awesome. You want to be there for this, and the only way to be there for that. Is you got it? We got to cure aging, and it's going to be a blast. And um, also, we have to, and I'm I'm sure like everyone here agrees that we have to really um, show the atrocity of aging, like really show it in detail, get people to see the extreme suffering the aging causes. We need more films that just expose this like and I'm going to old folks homes and like that's something I want to do like uh, make like films like really showing the horrible the horribleness of aging like what's going to happen to them so we can play a little bit on people's fears and uh, that's I think that's very important and also play on their uh, tug on their heartstrings like hey you want to alleviate this suffering like that's what that's what the cancer movement has done right it's like shown all these pictures of little kids with bald, bald little kids, and like it's trying to make people feel guilty in a sense, right, for not donating to that cause. I think we have to do the same thing. We have to show the, the you know, people are afraid to show it, like just how bad aging can really get. Like it's, what's a nightmare? We got to show it and get people to feel guilty for not being for this idea that we can end this. And another thing we can do to make this as powerful as the war on cancer is, you see with the, the war on cancer, people are gathering together in large groups. There's races, like run for the cure. There's like these huge races. People are getting together and like they're like, there's power in numbers. So the transhumanist movement 
totally has to take advantage of, you know, meeting together in person, having huge protests, huge rallies, uh, as we've, we're, we're starting to do. Um, we did a rally, uh, we did a protest demonstration on the last leg of the immortality bus with existential threats. That was an amazing success. And we just need to have more of that, and specifically about aging, and specifically um, about how we don't need to die, that death is not inevitable. We have to destroy this idea that people have. It's, it's hard because people have been brainwashed at a very young age to like, they think they have to die. There's no way out of it, and we ha it's, we have to we have to give them hope. We have to reverse that thinking, deprogram them, and it, I we're going to have to use every every uh, means possible, movies, uh, music, celebrities, everybody who has a talent. It can be used to promote this message that we can cure aging and live indefinitely. The Immortality Bus is doing a great thing. Sends.org is doing a great thing. You guys are. And uh, I thank every one of you guys for being a fighter for aging. This is definitely the most important cause. Let's do this so we don't have to die because life is awesome. All right, that's, that's my intro there. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Rowan. Life is awesome, and I think you made a lot of important points. I completely agree with you about the unfortunate preponderance of dystopian science fiction today that prevents people from seeing the hopeful possibilities of emerging technologies. And in terms of how anti-aging research is perceived right now, uh, an acquaintance of mine whom I've known for a while, uh, who is also a science fiction author, Joshua Dunn, uh, he wrote a book called Exile Empire. So he's no stranger to science fiction. He's not a transhumanist, but he's at least within our universe of discourse. What he says is most people don't envision life extension research as real. They see it as sci-fi. Cancer, on the other hand, seems easier to attack. Uh, so. I think that's a perception that we need to challenge and that we need to counter. Uh, and what you said with regard to that, giving people hope that this is a problem that can be overcome within our lifetimes is very important. Uh, Elizabeth Parrish just told us today that there was a successful gene therapy trial that may uh, yield fruit uh, in a few months' time. So that's no longer science fiction. It's a real possibility uh, within the proximate future, and that's something people need to know about. Uh, and there are a lot of other points that we'll want to touch on later. The immortality bus campaign, uh, of course, is going to uh, be a major focus uh, of our discussion as well. I'm a supporter of this campaign. I'm a supporter of uh, Zoltan Istvan's candidacy uh, for U.S. president. Uh, later on today, I'll read a statement from Peter Rothman, who takes a different perspective on the immortality bus, but we can discuss it and we can see uh, what we all think about this campaign and its impact. Uh, but Rowan, I appreciate your activism and your extensive involvement there. Thank Adam, you. certainly. Adam, let's hear some thoughts from you on uh, our central question. Hello, everyone. We have covered quite a bit of ground here, so I will get into the meat of the matter as I always do. We're operating under the assumption that human beings are essentially rational, which I think is a horrible mistake to make. 
Smoking, for instance, has declined as much due to social pressures as the fear of cancer. A person does not want to be perceived as low-brow or low-class. This ties in with the concept of conspicuous consumption, Thorstein Velben, Veblen, my mistake, apologies. When I was listening to Rowan talk about fear-based campaigns, this is something I was utilizing in a commercial I was putting together for BioViva. And one of the surest ways to strike fear into the heart of modern Americans is to talk about the economy and how it will likely tank as a result of aging populations. Of course, unlike the many thousands and thousands of doomsayers who've been talking about inflation, deflation, unemployment, this, this, and that, this is something that will happen as surely as the sun will rise. Yet, when I look at the problem, I see roots that go back many hundreds of years. Well, a hundred years with the Frankfurt School and then many hundreds of years with Rousseau. We have people who are perennial techno-pessimists who believe we ought to go back to a state of nature. This comes about in the Neo-Malthusian movement. You have folks like Paul Ehrlich who say, well, you know, all precious metals are going to go through the sky in another year. And he lost that bet. What do you know? He was wrong consistently. And so are many well-meaning but ultimately misinformed environmentalists who fail to take into account the power of exponential progress. And this is a concept that's difficult for people to wrap their minds around because you have to scan many, many fields at once and see how all of them connect together. Our education system does not promote the proper skills that people need now to contribute to biological sciences, to computer science, which is becoming more and more entangled with biology as time goes on. The Frankfurt School with the idea that uh, we're essentially equal, that cultures are equal, that, you know, this is wonderful. Margaret Mead talking about the Samoans who are liberated and wonderful because they're primitive. And then we go back and see, oh wait, they're not so liberated, not so wonderful. There's ritual rape and murder there. And Steven Pinker's book, The, Planks, the Blank Slate, is a wonderful excoriation of that cherished myth. So, going back to the topic of aging. There are these destructive memes that are very old, and some of them are as ancient as civilization itself. If you look at Greek, Vedic, most Indo-European cultures talk about, or even non-Indo-European cultures, talk about a golden age that preceded civilization. Of course, archaeology tells us that this age never existed, and the Stone Age people would die at 35, 30 of some infectious disease if they made it through childhood or made it through infancy. So combating it comes down to <clears throat> comes down to slowly changing the memes. Robert Cialdini talks about the methods used by Chinese communists in the Korean War. They didn't torture American prisoners, rather what they did is they slowly acclimated them to their way of thinking by making them make progressively more extreme statements. So they may say, well, say the US is not perfect they would say that and then they would ask them why steadily but surely it would happen so the problem has to be attacked <clears throat> in a subtle manner and from many directions at once 
going back to the fact people are not rational if you appeal to their vanity, to their need to improve themselves, to one-up their neighbors, going back to Veblen. Why his spirit is here in this room, I'm not sure, but I'm glad he has joined us. You can get them to do almost anything. Gene therapy may be a luxury good for some people, or may seem to be a luxury good, at least if it's being used for sarcopenia or for aging skin, for collagen production, which, of course, I mean, stimulating chondrogenesis or collagen production would also have some very useful applications besides making you look younger. So the acceptance has to be thought about critically, and we have to consider our audience. And there are many different audiences. Making it seem possible or realistic is something that you and I have talked about, and institutional sluggishness is also something you and I have talked about. I am not entirely sure how to address these problems besides a slow and steady dig at them. All right. Thank you, Adam. Uh, this was an excellent overview from a philosophical standpoint and from the standpoint of the history of philosophy. Uh, I can add a few uh, comments to that, uh, but I think there is an ongoing debate about the extent of human rationality. Uh, on the other hand, a major leap forward in human progress occurred during the 18th century Age of Enlightenment, which was premised on uh, at least the potential for human rationality and the potential to apply reason to dramatically improve the human condition. On the other hand, we still have these deeply irrational strains of thought uh, present and in some cases dominating human societies and uh, the large institutions that BJ discussed or in the Malthusian strain of thinking. Uh, I really like the example you used of Paul Ehrlich losing his bet with Julian Simon, uh, who is the author of The Ultimate Resource, and Julian Simon's point was the ultimate resource isn't anything in the ground, it's the human mind and the ability of the human mind to come up with new solutions for tackling age-old problems and expanding uh, the range of possibilities of what human beings can accomplish. So there's definitely a lot more to be said on this and I hope we return to these themes as well in our conversation uh, but for now let's hear from Keith Comito and his thoughts on our central question. Uh, hi, uh, firstly I want to say uh, thanks for uh, everyone putting this together and all the work that everyone is doing uh, echoing some earlier sentiments and uh, you know I'm, I'm kind of pleased with what I'm hearing already in that there's a lot of more uh, nuanced discussion about the philosophical backgrounds and psychology and that angle which I really do think is one of the more important things that we should look at in how to to make the war on cancer uh, effect for the war on aging. So I want to go back to Sven's um, initial sort of um, slideshow there and, and point out something that was also in the book The Emperor of All Maladies which is uh, great. There was also a TV special that was made that people can watch. Um, and it was about the Jimmy Fund, which was made by um, the uh, chemotherapy researcher who uh, was mentioned there. And basically what they hit upon is essentially a study of sort of cognitive biases about how people uh, have, you know, hardware built-in issues with how to perceive about uh, certain things. 
So the cognitive bias that they were exploiting there is scope neglect, that people can't uh, really wrap their mind around cancer, this amorphous thing that affects millions of people. So they found this one boy that had cancer, Jimmy, and made this whole fund and PR campaign about, you know, how do we help save this boy, Jimmy? They had all these telephone, uh, you know, telethons and that kind of stuff, and they raised a ton of money, got all this public support, and then were able to use that public support to kind of uh, leverage um, against the government to try to get them to release funds and that kind of thing. So I think that's very important. So we need to kind of think about, you know, how what is our Jimmy Fund? What can we do with aging that will have that same effect? And I think the transhumanist movement in general can 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 benefit a little bit from some re-messaging, I think, in certain spaces where there's a little bit in some areas uh, comes off as maybe uh, a bit condescending, a bit um, a bit committing the same error that we want to disabuse people of, which is over certainty. For example, say brain uploading and that kind of thing, that kind of far end of transhumanism. I think at this point in time, it's disingenuous to try to convince people that that is absolutely going to work and is absolutely going to be a good thing. There's still a lot of open questions there. So I think almost that kind of thing should be left to a little bit uh, later in, in the mission where we should focus on, like uh, Liz had mentioned, the silver tsunami and, and how that's going to affect pretty much every family in America in the coming decades because of the baby boomers. And you know everyone's going to know someone who is suffering horribly with Alzheimer's disease and I think it's much easier to position it as you know these things are objectively bad regardless of your religious background etc etc don't you want to help with this and the quickest best way to help with that is to attack the root causes of aging and I really don't think there needs to be a conflict with uh, certain forms of religious thought because I think you can position this in a very friendly way. Uh, for example, uh, I've had a lot of discussions with people in, in, in the clergy and that kind of thing and I, I've been able to sort of bring them around softly to uh, accepting this as a good thing because you can really convince them using uh, their own logic. Like say, if you believe in an all-powerful, all-benevolent creator, um, if you believe that, nothing that we could do could ever be outside of his plan or her plan. So if you know if you have faith, if you have conviction of your own faith and your God believes that this isn't a good thing, he'll find a way to make sure that it doesn't happen. Till then, why don't we all work on trying to alleviate suffering? And that's something that a lot of religions uh, you know, you know, help the poor, help the suffering. So I think that we shouldn't be hasty in making enemies of potential allies um, if we can position this the right way. Um, to piggyback on some earlier discussion too, where uh, there was some talk about, you know, what's the zeitgeist of the time, and are there any elements of that that can be compatible with uh, aging? You know, I think the the major idea that's really coming out right now is income inequality, and I think that there definitely is sort of a way to parlay that into aging because you know the healthcare bomb that's going to happen, and that might disproportionately make poor people suffer, and that kind of thing. So I think there's a way. To, take this into sort of an income inequality or equality angle uh, to help bring this into a bit of a more mainstream uh, sort of element. And as far as the final point that I'll make is as far as tactics of how to actually do this, right? So I obviously think, you know, things like the ALS uh, Ice Bucket Challenge was a good thing. It had a little bit of a gimmick, but it worked. So I think we should try to think about 
PR endeavors like that. Like right now, uh, I'm trying to do something with the Life Extension Advocacy Foundation called the Lifespan Challenge, where people hold up a sign like this and give a personal reason why they care about this. Like for me, you know, I personally took care of my grandmother for many years with severe Alzheimer's. Uh, so, you know, that's what I talk about. Um, crowdfunding, I also think, is another, you know, kind of sexy, hot thing now, and that's why we created Lifespan.io to try to, to bring a broader demographic into this, to try to get people excited, because it is exciting. Uh, like Adam mentioned, you know, there, there is great historical precedence for this, and I think if we can do a little bit more, uh, a better job of positioning this movement, you know, transhumanism, even the word, comes off as somewhat scary, you know, beyond human. To the layperson, it's, it's almost an assault. But I think we should focus on sort of the other side of that, trans as in transatlantic, you know, across, through. You know, this is something, this is a quest that humanity has been on since literally the first thing written ever, the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? And you, us, we all get to be part of the first hero's journey, you know, uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces style, Joseph Campbell, you know, mythology. Like, we get to be those people right now. And that's pretty damn exciting. And I think we can convince people of that. Um, and I think that's that's a very important thing to do. And again, as as Adam mentioned, you know, there people forget now. You know, we have those dystopian kind of viewpoints. But there was times in history where people thought the future was going to be awesome. You know, uh, the Enlightenment, then to uh, Romanticism and Modernism in particular. You know, transhumanism is is in a sense kind of like new modernism. And then you know, World War II happened and all that stuff. And then there was postmodernism and all this critique of progress and oh, you know, what is what does progress even mean? Is science even good? And I think we can do a lot of work to help society, not just transhumanism, move beyond this point by just clearly kind of defining our terms here. Uh, you know, what is progress? Let's define progress simply as the continued survival of the human race in a changing and uncertain universe and the you know, maximal happiness for the most amount of people even at that base rudimentary definition of progress. I think you can reasonably prove that certain therapies and, and, and endeavors are objectively uh, good things for society to pursue. And I think if we can kind of coerce some thought leaders in modern media, you know, YouTube celebrities, uh, cosmetics leaders, like for example, one person that combines that is Michelle Phan. She's uh, a YouTube celebrity with 10 million uh, followers, uh, all about makeup. You know, Liz, if, if your therapy uh, makes the skin actually better, I'm going to share that with her and then have her share that to her 10 million people on YouTube. And I think things like that are like to be game changers overnight. And that's personally like what I want the Life Extension Advocacy Foundation to focus on. So we're, we're working with a lot of kind of YouTube science communicators. Uh, we're, we're, we have uh, endeavors in the works with, you know, like uh, ASAP Science, um, Vsauce, uh, channels like that if you're familiar with the YouTube space. These science communicators that have huge followings and they talk about topics that are very close to this in a very engaging way. You know, like for example, one video like that could be, will overpopulation be the issue that we think it's going to be if people live longer? And have a fun, engaging talk about it and, and invite people. It's not talking down to people. It's saying, you know, here's this idea, here's what we think will happen, what do you guys think? Let's have a talk about it. And I think that's the way to really sort of get this movement to take off by itself. Instead of us preaching, we want to engage people and get them to talk about it and bring this initiative truly to the people. 
So that's kind of my elevator pitch there. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you, Keith, very much. Uh, by the way, uh, I tremendously admire what you're trying to do with Lifespan.io and the Lifespan Challenge. Uh, I myself contributed to the MitoSense fundraiser that just uh, hit its $30,000 goal, and I hope you have many more other such projects available on Lifespan.io in the future. It's really great to have a site that focuses specifically on research that's relevant to longevity and brings in ordinary people, people who aren't institutional investors but might be able to contribute five, ten, hundred, a thousand dollars sometimes, uh, that can make a real difference and anyone watching this can make a real difference by contributing to these kinds of campaigns. Uh, I will also add the uh, marketing aspect, uh, the aspect of building bridges with uh, people of various worldviews and persuasions I think is an important one to consider and we can uh, go into also the discussion of religion, its relation with transhumanism. I think there is uh, quite a bit of validity to what Rowan said, at least with regard to a lot of prevailing interpretations of religious belief. However, it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, uh, I always like to say religions evolve. The Christianity, the types of Christianity that are prevalent today are nowhere near the types of Christianity that were prevalent in the third century AD and religions evolve in response to technological, societal, political realities, I think in order to stay relevant in the 21st century, uh, religions will have to increasingly move in a more transhumanist direction and do some serious theological interpretation about uh, the desirability of extending lifespans uh, on Earth. Uh, and the desirability of alleviating suffering through research into specific diseases as well as the underlying causes of diseases like senescence. So with that, uh, let me also bring into the discussion Peter Rothman, who is uh, a well-regarded entrepreneur, one of the pioneers of virtual reality technologies. He's also the editor of H Plus Magazine, and uh, I had originally wanted him to be one of our panelists, but uh, he had a time conflict. However, he was generous in providing us a statement that I could read and solicit everyone's responses to, and uh, I think this statement also makes a lot of compelling points. It's provocative in certain respects, and I think uh, in some areas, uh, some of you will agree, in some areas, some of you will disagree, but let me read what he says, and then uh, anyone who wants to can uh, jump in with some comments. So Peter says, I have a few thoughts on uh, this central question of our discussion. Perhaps ironically, they're in the form of more questions. What exactly is the war on cancer? How did it start? How, quote, popular is it? Does popularity in this sense correspond to funding, research results, or any meaningful metric? Is this approach something we want to emulate? Wikipedia reports, quote, the war on cancer refers to the effort to find a cure for cancer by increased research to improve the understanding of cancer biology and the development of more effective cancer treatments, such as targeted drug therapies. The aim of such efforts is to eradicate cancer as a major cause of death. The signing of the National Cancer Act of 1971 by then U.S. President Richard Nixon is generally viewed as the beginning of the war on cancer, though it was not described as a war in the legislation itself." End quote. The war on cancer is referring here to the passage of a law and is not really a war in the conventional sense. 
the popularity of the idea is a bit of a misleading thing. I'm not sure what this means here. How many people supported the law back when it was passed? How many people think it is a good idea now? How many people search for this phrase on Google? Popularity in the sense of the general public liking an idea had little or nothing to do with the passage of a law like this. So, to summarize, the war on cancer required the passage of a law allocating funds. The popularity of the idea had nothing to do with it. The idea of a war on disease or an abstract concept such as terror is problematic. War suggests enemies to attack and weapons to deploy. But these metaphors are not always correct in reference to curing an illness like cancer or solving the complex problem of aging. After all, the enemy in cancer is our own DNA. How can we attack it? With aging, the issue is even more dramatic. A war on aging suggests eliminating older persons, perhaps. The war metaphor is at least overused and deserves to be questioned. Has the war on cancer been won? Wars are won and lost, but our scientific investigation of methods to cure disease goes on. Just because a disease is able to be cured in some cases does not mean we have, quote, won. Curing aging is, in fact, not entirely separate from curing cancer. Cancer is largely a disease of older persons, especially certain cancers. So any, quote, war on aging would at least overlap with the war on cancer. Creating a new war is always problematic, however. Declaring war does not produce funding. Successfully defeating aging requires funding of research and development of medical techniques, medicines, etc. It isn't a PR campaign like say no to drugs during the Reagan era, and the same methods of communication do not apply. But transhumanists are notoriously bad at marketing. For example, consider the failed immortality bus campaign, which draws crowds of less than half a dozen people. Again, Peter's words here. Uh, sure, it is weird enough to get written up in vice, but does it convince anyone that controls funding to support our efforts? Name one person or organization that has funded some scientific research as a result of this campaign. There isn't one. To move forward, we have to focus on the efforts that matter, and that means getting research funding. A realistic approach to increasing research funding is forming a political action committee to promote the idea in Congress and in D.C. more generally. This is where the decision will be made, as it was with Nixon's 1971 Cancer Act. All other efforts are at best distractions and at worst make our cause seem weird or out of the mainstream. Weird fringe causes do not attract funding. In summary, I want to suggest to the panel and audience that they go all in for longevity research. This means doing whatever you can do yourself to achieve longevity. Eat right, get enough sleep, avoid junk food, exercise. Transhumanists that do not do these things are not in a good position to talk to the public about longevity at all, in my view. Beyond this, we need to directly support research ourselves. Crowdfunding is one avenue, but realistically, crowdfunding is a drop in the bucket and will remain so when compared to the U.S. annual research budget of $65 billion. Volunteer yourself. So that was Peter's statement. He touched on a lot of areas, a lot of points. Uh, I think in many ways what he says will be controversial within transhumanist circles, uh, but I would welcome any thoughts from any of you on any of the points that Peter made. If you want to uh, agree with anything or offer a rebuttal, uh, this would be a great opportunity to do that. I'll get my rebuttal on the immortality bus because yes. I think Let, I let's do, do that, that first. Uh, let's I do that first. <laughs> so I have first-hand experience, and uh, no, it was not a fail. It was the immortality bus. Is uh, if you just look at the numbers, the crowds drawn in, you know, in physical places, maybe it's not, you know, a huge success on that metric. But actually, uh, quite a few of the events there was 
uh, uh, way more than like there was like 30 people at least at some of the events, especially the protests, um, the university that we went to where Zoltan talked to the students. There was a lot of students that entered the bus. I have uh, footage of it. I'm going to be more releasing more videos of that um, on the Eternal Life Fan Club YouTube channel. But um, also, you have to look at how much numbers of people were reached through articles that have been about the immortality bus. And so that, that's huge. Hundreds of thousands of people, tons of journalists. There's documentaries that are going to be made about this, this bus tour. So him saying it was a fail was completely ridiculous. No, it was a, the immortality bus is one of the most epic uh, things that ever happened in the transhumanist movement, and and we're gonna see we're gonna be seeing a big ripple effect from this, and hopefully you know it's not gonna it's not gonna end. The, the idea for the immortality bus, as Zoltan Istvan says, is that it's gonna be an ongoing campaign that's gonna travel all across the country. Hopefully this is not gonna stop at the end of his uh, campaign, uh, presidential campaign. It's just separate from that, and it's gonna keep on going. And it's going to inspire people of a techno-positive message that we can cure aging. It's going to tell people, look, you don't have to die. It's going to basically give, uh, present transhumanism as a type of salvation from death. Give people hope because right now, what do, have, what do people have? They have religion to go on for their eternal life. We need to give people hope that they can have physical eternal life on this planet with the help of technology. And that's the message of the transhumanist bus. It's that we can live forever, we don't have to die. And and I think it's it's doing amazing things. And I'm so so pleased that that uh, that it's happened and I've been able to be a part of it. Thank you for your response, Rowan. And I do think you've made an important point in that the physical attendance at an event does not necessarily fully reflect the reach of that event, especially in the age of social media, uh, very easily available video recording technology. You're a great example of Rowan. You have made so many videos that have extensive reach beyond the context of the event uh, in which they were recorded. So potentially hundreds or thousands of people could see a video of a rally where 15 or 30 people attended and then uh, Zoltan's focus on the media has also been impactful in the sense that a lot of articles have been written and they've reached tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, so with that, uh, who else would like to respond to uh, Peter Rothman's statement? Uh, yeah, I'd like to respond to um, the crowdfunding angle and also about the public involvement in the war on cancer. Um, Sven, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in the Emperor of All Maladies, it, the public was a vital intermediary step there between, you know, that was, it allowed them to form that action committee, allowed them to then talk to Lyndon Bain Johnson and then Nixon. So I think it was actually the crucial piece. So I don't think that yes, you are you are correct indeed. It's the yeah. they didn't succeed in convincing the politician di directly, although they did have some support of certain politicians, as I had shown in my presentation before. But it was really when they talked to the public, and the public sent, for example, like one million letters to Congress, urging Congress to work on aging, uh, so on cancer. That was really when things started to go off. So you are perfectly correct here. 
Thank you. And related to that, um, at the SENS uh, 20, RP2015 conference, uh, Francis Colon was there, who works for the State Department, for uh, the Secretary of State. Um, and I talked to her, basically, because she said, you know, she tries to advocate for aging, but the politicians don't listen. So I was asking her, you know, what is it that those people in that room need to hear to get serious about this? And what she said was basically this, we need to get millions of people writing their congressmen. We need to have, one thing that she said that's very interesting is to have many different voices in many different areas. It can't just all be coming from SENS or et cetera, otherwise it's easy to dismiss as a fringe thing. So we need to try to outreach to as many different groups, uh, not just in the research community, but you know, different sort of uh, you know, advocacy groups for, you know, again, income inequality, maybe uh, certain kind of uh, celebrity kind of endorsements. You know, Hal Sparks would probably be a good one because he helps out SENS and has a science TV show for kids. Um, so that's that part. And as far as the crowdfunding, uh, I agree with what he said. Um, crowdfunding will never be able to match the amount of funding that the government could eventually release. But the whole point of Lifespan.io, for example, is not really about the money. It's about this PR. It's about exposing this to other people and pulling more people into the ecosystem. That's the real mission. Absolutely. Uh, I think in terms of sending a signal, a crowdfunding campaign that succeeds in raising several tens of thousands of dollars is very powerful because it says, here, ordinary people are aware of and interested in helping with this research, which is not the case for the vast majority of academic research projects. Indeed, most academic research projects historically have been uh, done in an environment of complete disconnect from the general public, and that's unfortunate uh, because ultimately the general public would be the beneficiaries uh, of these research efforts. Uh, so I definitely agree with you, Keith. Crowdfunding can be a powerful impetus. Uh, now. Uh, before uh, we go on to the question of institutional support in greater detail, I wanted to ask if anyone else had other responses to Peter's statement. Yeah, I do. I think that, um, I really like Peter, but I think that sending 20 questions instead of an actual statement was uh, probably not a good idea since um, Sven actually answered a lot of those questions uh, at the get-go. And so a good logical um, uh, presentation uh, took care of that. Uh, I, uh, outside of the immortality bus, I, I'm not into that. I'm not on, on that side of it, things, but I do agree that uh, the group in general doesn't just have to be transhumanist. It needs to be the whole world. Everyone needs to get up and say, uh, we're dying of biological aging and uh, we need to get behind an effort uh, to cure uh, this disease and if we can mitigate the diseases of aging then we've created a more humane world and actually this is a, a lot more doable than curing cancer or Alzheimer's independently because they all have to do with the aging cell and so um, anyone who's not up to date on that should be brought up to date and that doesn't mean that they're stupid people don't have time in their lives we need to educate the world and we need them to get to stand up and to demand aging be considered a disease and that funding goes uh, to the to the right places and that's why um, our company again is going for physical proof we feel like this is what has been missing so we're not you know saying well we're uploading a, a brain or whatever uh, tomorrow but what we are trying to do is work on the intermediary steps and I think that if we can educate even people within the transhuman group of what's happening in, in biotechnology uh, so that they can have 
have a, a, a conversation with the rest of the world that actually shows the steps to getting there, it creates a logical conversation. It gets people really excited about it instead of um, thinking, well, you know, you've, you've taken too big of a step for me and that doesn't make sense. Uh, we can make logical steps and we can make them now. I want to go back a little bit to religion. I've talked to a lot of religious people. I'm not religious. I wasn't raised religious, but I've talked to a lot of religious people, and I've never gotten fallback um, for these ideas. And I think that shutting those groups out is, is just wrong. Um, that that they are in a human state of culture, and um, and is valid uh, to them as it is to anyone else. Uh, people who are religious love the idea of gene therapy. They love the idea of life extension. Um, with an international longevity alliance, we actually looked at a myriad of different religions and as far as Christianity itself you know uh, God says at some point if you follow my ways you'll live 800 and some years and we believe that's through science and technology also Jesus went around curing disease which is pretty um, upstanding as far as uh, we're concerned so I think that what could really ignite um, this industry is actually its first human proof uh, we don't know if we'll be part of that we have to wait and see but we sure hope that we will be and we do want to push uh, Peter's uh, thoughts on become involved, uh, become pioneers. Uh, we don't know uh, what will happen, but we certainly want to find out. Put your arm in, donate. Uh, we need to become the people that looked across the sea even though we thought the world was flat and we need to sell that sea. Uh, there's no other way to get there. We need to make a better world for tomorrow if not for ourselves and we can't do it in fear and um, without actually getting our skin into the game. So, you know, we do realize on the, the economic side of this, initially uh, this will be funded by people with a lot of money. Uh, especially gene therapy, but those technologies will trickle down. I believe that these people want a healthy, uh, active uh, workforce just as much as they want to be healthy and active themselves. And you need to let these people take the risks, the big risks, so that by the time it gets to the general population, we know exactly what we're giving you and how much, and we know how to fix the problem. So it's really not an issue of have and have nots. We have to build the supercomputer for everyone to get an iPhone or a laptop or whatever it is. Uh, that, that you cherish as far as your technology. So I mean those would be my thoughts. I'm really thankful that uh, Peter put in his statement. I really wish that he would have been here. Um, I think that again we covered a lot of, of, of the questions already and, and that he did have a lot of uh, valid input on maybe you know everyone doesn't have uh, the right way to do things but at least uh, they're doing things and um, I think that the, the only uh, thing that I can say is that I do know people who have gone to Congress and they have tried tried to get laws passed, but without the grassroots movement of the world saying that we want this or at least a million people, uh, you're, you're, you're just not going to get it passed. What pushes it is the people demanding it. And I believe that if we can reach the people, uh, that's what I do. I try to talk to average people. I'm not qualified to talk to anyone else. <laughs> uh, and, and tell them you know, what we're actually doing in science. We have reverse aging in animals. We have reverse aging in every human tissue. Um, you know, these, it's not, it's not a, a vanity thing. This is actually, if you don't look younger, then you are not younger and you will die of, of biological aging, cellular degeneration, what's happening at the cellular level. So you can combine those two things and get excited about that. Uh, but it, it's, it's not, it's not science fiction, it's science fact. And, uh, 
you know, I hope that all of uh, us will be part of, of uh, making this big effort, and I know that Peter will himself. Thanks. Absolutely. And I do think it's important to note politics is a lagging indicator rather than a leading indicator of societal attitudes. Uh, I think you very importantly pointed out you need a groundswell of public support, and Keith has emphasized this as well, before politicians can take action, uh, because otherwise they just don't see the point. They don't see how it's relevant to their re-election or how it's a priority for their constituents. Uh, so definitely, in my view, more of a hyper-pluralistic approach than uh, what Peter described would be better. Peter uh, seems to say, uh, yes, you take care of yourself, you volunteer, you get involved, but uh, all the efforts should focus on this kind of institutional advocacy and I don't, I, I don't agree with that either. I think there's room for diversity of approaches in seeking uh, life extension goals and seeking to raise public awareness. Uh, so let me open this up to anyone else who wants to make any statement about of what Peter said, and then we can discuss uh, the role of large institutions more generally. Um, I have a reply to what Peter said, not just what Peter said, but also to some points raised by other people during this panel. Um, so there was a question about crowdfunding, and uh, you know I'm a director of uh, Iminst, uh, and we have been uh, funding, uh, doing crowdfunding projects for many years now. And I believe that crowdfunding can help to do certain key projects. Um, Anyone who is uh, involved in science uh, will know that it's often hard to get uh, funding for projects that may be too far out there, projects that are too new, that are too speculative, but that nevertheless may be proving to be great advances. And I believe that crowdfunding is able to fund certain projects that may, you know, open up a whole new insights uh, and that would not have been funded through the more traditional uh, grant agencies. Um, also there was, you know, there is some talk about transhumanism here, immortality and things like that and that's something that, uh, you know, has been going on for many, many years. Uh, you may have known that um, Longevity, uh, the former Immortality Institute, changed their name. Um, and that was after years of debates on what the name exactly should be. And, you know, it's felt by me and, and other people that we should be careful in the way we, we reach out to the general audience. Um, reaching out with a too extreme vision is not good. Like, I, I personally, you know, while, while I admit that I want to be immortal, um, it's probably not the best marketing strategy to talk to people about that in that sense. Rather, it's a good idea to talk about healthy life extension, letting you live 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, longer in good health, making you younger. Talking it in that way, I think it's, it's, it's much better. You are probably going to scare away some people by using too extreme terminology. Um, BG also mentioned um, about the risk of having pushbacks from large uh, organizations and companies. Uh, 
and that may indeed be true when it comes to smoking. Uh, it's definitely true when it comes to, to diet, for example, where there is a lot of vested interest. But when it comes to, to aging research, the biomedical side of things, uh, I rather think that um, large organizations can help us accelerate. So like uh, last year, I was at the MIPTEC conference in Basel, uh, which is organized mainly by Novartis. And Novartis is really working these days on aging research. It's, uh, it's incredible. Um, so the keynote lecture of that conference uh, was given by the chairman of the board of Novartis. And something like a third or so of his slides were mentioning aging while he was presenting a more general outlook for the future of pharmaceutical research. And like a third or so of his slides were mentioning aging research. Um, there was a whole aging forum uh, last year and again this year at the conference. I'm sadly not able to, I wasn't able to go this year, it was last week. Um, so, so it shows that within pharmaceutical industry, things are changing. Novartis did a trial in humans with rapamycin, uh, where short-term rapamycin treatment was shown to improve immune response in elderly people to vaccination. And as you might know, that um, you know pneumonia and, and other uh, infectious diseases are a big problem in, in elderly people. They have a weakened immunity and, and they also often respond much less to vaccination. And apparently an anti-aging drug for a short period of time is able to reverse that uh, action. So um, I think we can actually really bundle together our forces with uh, pharmaceutical organizations and other institutions uh, to push forward the goal of extending lifespan. Then uh, Rune also uh, mentioned um, that uh, we need ways to show to the public um, that aging uh, you know, is something that can be uh, impacted upon. And um, it's uh, important to note, I, I did it already in my presentation, that, um, you know, uh, genetic interventions, mutations at extended lifespan, they were really very important in the 1980s, 1990s to convince the scientific community that aging could indeed be impacted. Before the 1980s, uh, if you would have asked almost any scientist, any biomedical scientist, they would have said that aging was a too complex problem to ever have much uh, impact upon. And people who were studying it were looked at as weird, strange, at the fringe. Uh, and then came uh, uh, Tom Johnson, who discovered the first uh, mutation, and later Cynthia Kenyon, who discovered the second mutation. And it was really around the time of the second mutation that was discovered that people started to, to uh, in the scientific community, understand that aging was indeed open to biomedical intervention. However, I think that even until today, the public is not aware of all of these things. And that's a problem. We need to reach out, I think, and tell the public, look, we have made all these interventions and we have made so much success. For example, with gene therapy, you probably remember the study from Maria Blasco with telomerase gene therapy, which is incredible because it was a single injection done in a mice that was a year old. And suddenly you had lifespan extension. And you know, that, that's, in my opinion, it's incredible that you can do a single injection 
I have a, a, a 30 to 20 percent life, 13 to 20 percent lifespan extension. Um, oh yeah, I should also mention. Um, Keith mentioned the ALS ice bucket challenge, and uh, a friend of mine, Victor Bjork, has uh, started uh, the Jean Calmon Day, which is a little bit. It's not the same as the ice bucket challenge, but it's a little bit similar. Uh, it's calling upon everyone to uh, post a picture of themselves with uh, some chocolate and olive oil because those are the famous foods of Jean Calment to which she attributed her longevity um, to post a picture on the 21st of February which is her the birthday of Jean Calment uh, and, and, and call upon the world to extend lifespan and um, earlier this, uh, this week on Monday uh, I was at a lecture, so now I'm coming to, to Adam, who mentioned um, the ecology movement. And, um, you know, that, that there is like some pushback there of people who, who think we should be go back to nature and we don't see that technological progress can actually set us free um, from uh, many of those those problems. And on Monday I was at the lecture of uh, eco-modern modernists and this is a complete new movement in the ecology movements uh, who actually advocate that uh, science technological progress can actually uh, improve uh, the ecosystem and we actually show that um, contrast to many people what many people think uh, today actually we are uh, you know live you know doing less um, you know, we are less severely impacting uh, the environment than we did in the past. You know, uh, we are with more people, but we are less severely impacting uh, per person. If you look, for example, you know, in the Middle Ages, how much, you know, it, you know, uh, when people were uh, heating and cooking and doing all of those things by, uh, you know, wood, with wood, how much, uh, you know, pollution that created and how much uh, wood that was being cut away, forests that were cleared away to support people, that was way more severe than what we are doing today. And that's due to improvements in technology. Um, so it, it, I'm very glad to see that there is this more new movement that is trying to see that technology is for the better uh, betterment of humankind. Yeah, that's where my remarks. All right, thank you, Sven. Uh, again, a lot of important areas you delved into. Uh, I also think it's encouraging to have a strain of uh, more technologically friendly environmentalism because certainly the more traditional 1960s era environmentalism was very hostile to technological progress and development and in many sense uh, in many senses reflected this postmodernist reaction against progress and the Enlightenment. So I have had to be personally opposed to that kind of environmentalism, but the kind of environmentalism that embraces technology as the solution to uh, many of the existing problems encountered in human societies, uh, that uh, is definitely an approach that's compatible with life extension research and with progress more generally. So uh, I'm very open to that. Uh, now, with regard to the role of large institutions, I think you touched on that. You gave an example of Novartis, 
whose uh, chairman seems to be uh, quite progressive in his outlook uh, on combating aging, and that is encouraging. Of course, not every large institution operates that way. I think sometimes the sheer weight of bureaucracy and established processes and protocols uh, can greatly impair the progress of life extension research. See the Food and Drug Administration and how it might take 10 to 15 years to uh, get a treatment or a drug uh, from uh, discovery to uh, availability to the general public. And I think there's a quite a bit of uh, difference in perspectives among uh, people who are friendly to life extension on this and even in the comments uh, that I've received so far uh, there are very different points of view uh, that have been emphasized for instance Michael Bryant who is one of the members of the Nevada Transhumanist Party states if our government would have paid uh, for those STEM students to complete their degrees and fund the research we would already have defeated aging and the problem of energy uh, this is not a question of social necessity, it is a social travesty not to. So here is a strong advocate of uh, government funding in particular for uh, life extension, for uh, training of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics students, and uh, for other types of scientific research. On the other hand, uh, I also received a comment from uh, C. James Townsend, uh, who states that the history of government-supported research is not a great one. Most new treatments for cancer that are now arising are coming from private institutions. As technology advances, the cost for doing private research will keep falling, and the number of people who can look into this research will continue to expand. An X-Prize format, along with interested billionaires, I see as the best chance we have to break through the neo-Malthusian roadblock that infuses government and NGOs that keeps aging research back. So uh, what's interesting about his comments is he tied it back to this neo-Malthusian attitude, this 1960s, 1970s era environmentalism uh, that scared a lot of people uh, off of the thought of technological progress. And he thinks, unfortunately, established institutions uh, are characterized by this kind of thinking. Uh, on the other hand, he dis uh, distinguishes those kinds of institutions from uh, individual philanthropists, perhaps uh, people like Peter Thiel or Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who have put in large amounts of money into life-extending research. I think he would also distinguish that from small, innovative startups that are trying to disrupt uh, the research scene and uh, the types of projects that get funded, for instance, BioViva, uh, I think he would agree, uh, is one of the uh, initiatives uh, that is trying to break through that, let's say, stale mindset of the existing institutions. Uh, so uh, I would open it up now to your thoughts on this question. Uh, is it a good thing uh, to have support from large established institutions, or uh, are they just obstacles in the way of progress for life extension research? Well, I have, a, I have obviously some input on that, and uh, we, we did look at a, a lot of different places. I, I sat down with people at universities, I sat down with uh, governments and uh, around, around the world, and actually uh, things move very slowly at, at their pace. And, and this is actually one thing that I would really like to point out, and I think this is one place that we can have uh, leverage with the, with the average uh, public, is that you know we have to put everything into account. We have to put in 100 years to a drug to 
discovery is not acceptable. We have to put into account that we're sitting on the top of research, uh, 30 years of research uh, that shows good outcome and that has never been used in a human. Uh, we also need to do things like we need to look at the US system. We need to look at this 15-year, billion-dollar-plus process uh, that, in fact, uh, does not mean that you have safety and efficacy. They would say you have safety and efficacy because the person doesn't die right away, but in fact every drug that your doctor can prescribe you, you're almost guaranteed to die of the very disease that it's going to treat. So we have to get people really excited and, and leverage uh, the idea that there is really no safety and efficacy. Every one of those drugs is an experiment and every small molecule you take, it's nothing but side effects. So the side effect may be uh, something positive that maybe you breathe a little bit better, but then there's going to be a side effect of liver damage, a side effect of kidney damage, and, and a myriad of other side effects. Well, the reason we like gene therapy is because we're doing it right at the cellular level. And so we're trying to make your cells the drug factories that they need to be to create what you need to create and just solve the problem in one fell swoop. This is going to take us time. But, you know, gene therapy is grossly considered an experimental medicine, but we would say the experiment is still out. Uh, we would like to change uh, the way that, that you'll die in the future. That sounds really rough. We study death. We know how you'll die right now. We know how everyone watching this will by the numbers, by the percentages. And we'd like to change that to an unknown and, and stave that off as long as possible, stave off suffering as long as possible. And that's going to take us becoming pioneers and, and creating a new mindset of being willing to jump into a new future, a future that we won't know what's going to happen over time. But I can guarantee what's going to happen to you if you continue to take uh, the pharmaceuticals that you're taking you, you you will die there is nothing on the market that's going to uh, to keep you from uh, dying of the probably the disease that you're actually treating uh, so uh, you know that is is exciting in itself and and I probably got a little bit off topic with my tangent <laughs> sorry I think you uh, addressed uh, a lot of the central themes of the question and from more of an economist's perspective, uh, I have often encountered arguments that the FDA has an incentive to be hyper-cautious, hyper-conservative in what treatments it approves uh, because of what uh, will happen if a treatment approved by the FDA actually ends up having severe undesirable side effects. The FDA or the officials uh, performing the approval will get blamed. On the other hand, if it's just a lost opportunity, uh, a treatment that never gets out there that people don't have a chance to evaluate and see if it works or doesn't work, it could have saved hundreds of thousands or millions of lives. It could have expanded lifespan dramatically, but uh, nobody knows this, so yeah. no official gets blamed. Right, so I think that precision medicine is going to help us a lot. You know, obviously the expansion of genetics is going to help us a lot so that we're treating p patients with the, the uh, molecules that they need to be treated with or the gene therapies that they need to be treated with. But this whole not being held accountable thing is a really important uh, point because actually more people die every year, uh, you know, actually tens of thousands of people die every year with adverse drug effects. That means an adverse effect to the drug that they were taking to treat their disease that's outside 
outside of them even dying of that disease. And no one's held accountable. Everything is held behind money walls and big corporations. Uh, we're not, you know, here to start a fight at all. Uh, we're here to work with the system, but we would like to be uh, welcomed into the system as being actually a viable alternative and to uh, be accepted quite quickly in disease mitigation. You know, we would like to do our work within the U.S. We would like to start working with uh, compassionate care uh, patients, people in end-stage disease, so that these patients can start taking some of these gene therapies now that might not only reverse their aging but reverse their disease. Um, I don't suggest that anyone stops taking their prescriptions as prescribed. Um, I'm not a medical doctor and I wouldn't suggest that, but I really think that we have to question the system and we have to question it hard now if we want to make change. Each one of us has to question that system. I completely agree with you. Uh, let's uh, see if anyone else has some thoughts on the question of institutions, how they uh, tend to act. Could they be helpful or are they primarily posing an obstacle right now? And if they are primarily posing an obstacle right now, how could that be changed, if at all? Yeah, I'd like to uh, discuss about that. Uh, you are right, uh, uh, Liz, about we need to work within the system uh, here because you know these are going to be uh, certain obstacles and if we can figure out ways to get them involved uh, this would definitely be very beneficial to us but it's not just so much of getting other institutions major institutions involved in helping us but also involved in uh, pressuring other institutions who may not be as forthcoming and we have uh, big problems with a lot of uh, greedy uh, corporate types of industries, uh, especially more recently. We saw the uh, unfortunate uh, price increase of Daraprim by Terrian Pharmaceuticals by his, their CEO, Martin Screlli. And th that caused a lot of uh, anger, uh, almost universally throughout the board from a lot of people because this was something that uh, helps treat uh, protozoal infections. and it was at a, a very cheap price and then it was brought up and now it's been brought back down unfortunately thanks to a lot of uh, pushback from the public itself but we do need to be cautious about those kind of institutions and as uh, Janata has mentioned uh, like the FDA uh, they have uh, a notorious record of being far too cautious they are pretty much the epitome of the precautionary principle uh, where like for example you know they're uh, 18 year, I think it's 19 year war now against uh, a simple thing like GM salmon. Uh, it's a genetically modified salmon that helps, uh, uh, you know, it helps the fishing industry and it helps bring uh, uh, more food to the plate. And yet, when after 18 years of uh, safety precautions brought into it and all the research brought in saying that it is most definitely safe, we still don't have a full endorsement by the FDA. And then we have the infamous uh, attack on 23andMe but the, by the FDA. So we're going to have to be very cautious about those kind of institutions and figuring out ways of getting them involved. Uh, it'll definitely be a tough fight. But if we can get uh, major institutions on our side and uh, have them actually start pressuring other major institutions, we could see uh, a sort of domino effect in terms of you know increasing the popularity and in terms of fighting uh, against aging and having all these major major institutions fighting for us but even when they're not we do have other technologies at hand to help us with that which others in this panel have mentioned uh, 
several times, and that is like crowdfunding. That will help definitely in the funding process. But even in, uh, I, I noticed that Sven mentioned that if there is an idea that is big and new, that might be a lot more difficult in uh, getting a, a progress or any success in a crowdfunding. But that's not necessarily true. It just requires a lot more effort and uh, a bit more of an open, uh, open box thinking. Uh, I say this because uh, when I was working with uh, Planetary Resources, the asteroid mining company, I was helping them under the Planetary Community Vanguard, and the entire point was to try and get outreach campaigning for the ARCID-100 Space Telescope, and we were we put it through a crowdfunding phase uh, to try and get as many people involved as possible, and we needed a million dollars in funding. That was a big price, especially for crowdfunding. But the way we, that we did it was getting not just people involved, which crowdfunding is notorious for, and it's very beneficial and it gets a lot of people to be involved in projects, major projects. Uh, but we also got celebrities involved. We ended up getting Brent Spiner involved, who is the infamous actor as Data from Star Trek Next Generation. We got, ended up getting uh, Seth Green, who uh, another notorious actor. He's the voice of... Uh, uh, Chris from the famous uh, cartoon show Family Guy. We got these people involved, and this helped convey uh, convey this popularity, this idea of this is something that is a popular idea that needs support because people, whether you agree with it or not, people look up to people like celebrities. They they whenever you see someone say we're going to go fight this war here or fight war on cancer, millions and millions of people follow suit. And if we can get uh, people like that involved in crowdfunding projects against aging, uh, you know, no matter how big of an idea it is, no matter how new of an idea it is, uh, we can definitely uh, achieve uh, a lot of success through that boundary, whether or not certain institutions are on our side or not. Absolutely. And I definitely think with crowdfunding, having celebrity endorsements helps another uh, tactic that might help would be more of an incremental build-up. For instance, you might require X dollars for a particular phase of the project to be implemented. You could crowdfund that, show a success of that, and then launch the next phase of it through some combination of crowdfunding and, uh, let's say, larger donations or even institutional investments. Uh, so that's a possibility. Uh, one other development that I think uh, is quite promising, uh, it has already happened in Japan, is some possibility for treatments to be able to be marketed to the general public without yet having received ultimate approval from the regulatory authority. So Japan implemented this very recently where there is now essentially a seven-year period where while a treatment is undergoing the review process by uh, Japan's equivalent of the FDA, uh, the company could still market it and gather data. The data could be used as input uh, into uh, the trials for safety and efficacy. And then uh, if at the end of the seven-year period approval is not granted, the treatment would have to be withdrawn uh, from public circulation. But at least there's the opportunity to try it and see whether it works or not. So I think that's a tremendous step forward. Uh, another similar approach that I've advocated in an article of mine titled Six Libertarian Reforms to Accelerate Life Extension is essentially to 
allow for a separate category of treatments that can be marketed with informed consent by patients and perhaps with a disclaimer saying this has not been approved by the Food and Drug Administration or it's equivalent in another country, use at your own risk, make sure the disclosures uh, are very prominent, very effective so people know what they're getting into, but on the other hand if they're terminally ill, uh, if no uh, established approved treatment can assist them, then uh, I think it's a travesty to deny them the opportunity to try something that might work. Uh, so that's one idea. I have several others uh, along the same lines in that article. Uh, you mentioned, BJ, uh, the recent uh, increase in the price of an essential drug by orders of magnitude. Uh, I think this has to do with the current state of uh, the patent system and the exclusive monopolies that a lot of companies can enjoy. In no competitive market uh, could uh, a provider ever raise the price by that much without going out of business almost immediately because there would be others offering the product. Uh, so that's another thought to consider. Uh, but uh, I would like to hear from more of you as well about this issue. Um, can I just make a small correction? I was not saying that uh, crowdfunding is uh, not so good for uh, things that are too far out there. I was just saying the inverse. I was saying that crowdfunding is something that can actually uh, provide funding for things that are too far out there for traditional funding for uh, sources to fund. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, absolutely. Yes, oh, sorry. I was just going to say that I really liked uh, what B.J. Murphy had to say about uh, celebrities. I think that point cannot be overemphasized enough. Like, let's go to Hollywood. Let's get like a team of transhumanists to try to like <laughs> find some amazing, you know, celebrities that would like promote anti-aging. Um, but also, I I'd like to point out um, uh, about what Keith and Liz were saying about inclusion, the inclusion of religious people, like. I completely agree, though I mean I'm probably like the most, uh, of my estimation, I'm probably like the most outspoken person against religion here, but I, I just want to emphasize that I want to include religious people as much as possible. What I'm just, I'm concerned about though is that we're not, that we don't become so over-optimistic as far as how religious people will receive these ideas that we fail to... Um, reform the religions so that they're going to accept anti-aging and transhumanist um, technologies more because as I see it right now um, from the religious people I have talked to there is this attitude that like curing aging is kind of like going down that road kind of like the Tower of Babel you know like you go down that road you're like you're like reaching too far you know there's that kind of attitude in religion and that the attitude that we should accept death and that and that aging is all part of the plan, these kinds of things, they need to be reformed. Uh, like almost like we need to have like a team of transhumanists like dedicated to like reinterpreting the Bible and like coming up with a, a whole reformation that would make transhumanism way more digestible to the average, average religious person. So it's not that I don't want to include religious people. I totally do, and I don't think we should, um, you know, go out of our way to, you know, offend them or anything like that. Uh, it's just that I'm, I'm cautious about how are they going to receive these ideas, so let's, let's focus on that. That's kind of what I, what I want to say about that. 
And that's a great bridge into the subject I wanted to discuss next, which is uh, just that, uh, the interactions, possibilities for, uh, let's say, compatibility between uh, religion and transhumanism. And I am an atheist myself. I've always been uh, an atheist. Uh, on the other hand, there are some explicit transhumanists who are religious. Uh, there's the Mormon Transhumanist Association in Utah, for instance, which is very well organized, and uh, I actually had an extensive exchange uh, yesterday evening with uh, Lincoln Cannon, who runs the Mormon Transhumanist Association, uh, about inclusivity uh, of religious transhumanist perspectives. And to some extent, I agree with him. There's no need to fight battles that don't need to be fought. On the other hand, there are also a lot of other theological frameworks that are deeply hostile to transhumanism. Think of Wahhabist Islam, for instance. Uh, people who will behead you if you disagree, not just uh, with uh, some aspect of their belief, but if you disagree with a 7th century lifestyle. So there's that other uh, extreme. And I wonder if it's not so much a question of religious versus non-religious dispositions, but something else, something more fundamental. I had this discussion with uh, Ilya Stombler, uh, who is also a leading activist for the International Longevity Alliance and an expert on the history of life extension thought, including uh, how individuals of various religious persuasions have interpreted it. And he points out throughout history there have been uh, strains of Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism that have been very receptive to uh, exceptionally long lifespans, but certainly not all of them. Russian cosmism is a great example. Uh, Nikolai Fyodorovich Fyodorov, uh, or in English Nikolai Fyodorov, uh, was a thinker in the 19th century uh, who uh, essentially thought that resurrecting every single person who ever lived was part of the great task that was commanded by God, the God of the Russian Orthodox uh, religion, and he was a great inspiration to uh, Russian futurists in the 20th century, even during uh, the much more secular communist era. Uh, so that was very interesting. And the thought I offered to Ilya was, perhaps it's not so much, do you believe in a God, do you believe in the supernatural that is the determining force, but some more underlying view of the desirability of life, uh, whether it's desirable to keep striving for life or whether it's desirable to resign oneself to a perception of uh, inevitable fate. And I talked with you about this uh, some time ago, uh, Rowan, and I asked you, well, what do you think this more fundamental motivation is? And you said something very interesting. It's that the people who want to live longer, the people who are receptive to indefinite life, are people who have a better opinion of themselves and uh, a better opinion of uh, how good their lives would be if they kept living them, whereas the people who don't want it uh, dislike their lives to some extent and see uh, finitude as somehow desirable for whatever reason. So I would welcome uh, everybody's thoughts about this. Maybe we can transcend the questions of religion and look at more of these fundamental motives about how do you view yourself, how do you view the desirability of continuing to live the, uh, let's say, more primary drives uh, and inclinations that people have. I have one more comment, right, right, from what you just said there, um, about 
the, the people who want to live are the people who like really love themselves, have a good opinion of themselves, and have a high self-esteem. And I see another problem of religion is that um, it's like taught that we're inherently sinful, and that you know it's like it's like we have a sin nature. A lot of religions teaches, and it's something you can't really stop. Like it's like you're forced on you, and kind of a um, that attitude, and all, and also that you like deserve to be punished with death. In fact, that's that's the teaching of Christianity is that death is literally the punishment of sin. And so when that's being taught, you can see how the idea that transhumanists are talking about where we're going to cure aging and live indefinitely and potentially forever, you see that, that into the Christian mind, a lot of them wouldn't say, well, that's like circumnavigating God's plan of punishment. Like we're supposed to be punished with death. Like in the Garden of Eden, you know, we ate the fruit and we deserve to die now. So that's kind of another conflict I see. And I'm not saying, and we just need to like try to reinterpret these books for Christians so that maybe they can get around that somehow and they can justify living forever physically on this earth, living indefinitely and not being forced to die. Because right now I think that they think that God wants to force us to die and that, that's, that's a problem. So, while there are substantial differences between the world's religions, we find in thinkers like Meister Eckhart, Rumi, Sri Aurobindo, Adi Shankara, the Buddha, this recognition of essential sameness. And there's a wonderful book by Aldous Huxley on this topic, and you can find it in Ken Wilber's work as well. So when you're appealing to the highest parts of the human intellect, the highest drives that we have, it doesn't have to be cloaked in any particular symbolism. It merely needs to be compassion, kindness, and goodness. Now this goes back to what Peter said, Peter Rothman, who I am very fond of and I respect a great deal, and frankly I think he was just playing devil's advocate. I think he was trolling us. So, touche, Peter, I wish you had only phrased it in maybe three or four <laughs> questions instead of 20, but I Now, any particular idea is going to come about in many, many different regional manifestations. It's also going to manifest itself in different ways in different people. This is the qualia problem, right? When I think of an apple, it's different than when you think of an apple. You might think of a green one instead of a red one. So these different approaches are by no means mutually exclusive. You just have to target different groups in different ways. C. James Townsend was a fellow who I invited here because he is also an Austrian economist and a transhumanist. So of course I knew you would love him, Junati, and you will also love his book, which I'm sure you I will send you the link to it. Please do. And when we're talking about government versus business, that's another really unnecessary dichotomy. For better or worse, they are bound together at this point in history, and we can't avoid it. Now, as much as I despise regulation and the heavy hand of government, Bell Laboratories, for instance, created a number of wonderful discoveries, and they were essentially a government-run or government-condoned monopoly. NASA is another government-sponsored program, and we've gotten some good stuff out of that, too. 
So I don't think we should cast aspersions on them, and I don't think we should become horribly melancholic over regulations themselves because regulations are there to be broken. Of course, a law is only as good as someone's ability to enforce it. And since our ability to synthesize DNA has become, I mean, we can synthesize it for dollars, we can edit genomes, we can analyze them for very little amounts of money. In fact, for $2,000, I could build a pretty sophisticated supercomputer with Raspberry Pi units. And that price has probably come down since I read that article. So I might be mistaken there. Of course, I mean, Liz has the most experience, hands-on experience with this, <clears throat> with getting a product through all of these agencies, and she's trying to go through the proper channels, but in the not-so-distant future, people may just say, well, I have this AAS virus here, I have my... Well, I have my vector, I have my gene of interest. I'm going to shoot grandma up with this stuff because, hey, if I don't, she's going to die. Yes. Uh, well, I, th I think you've made an important point about different, let's say, local variations on similar essential themes, how different religions and philosophies draw on the same common elements of human existence but package them differently and sometimes that packaging uh, might get in the way of the underlying truth, the underlying realities that are common among religious people and atheists. Uh, and I do think it's important to expose those underlying realities and try to get common ground on achieving specific aims. In my view, this is the only world there is, and I want indefinite life extension here. Uh, whoever helps me in that endeavor is an ally, irrespective of how they come uh, about that motivation to help. Uh, I really do wish sometimes one had crystal clear insight into every individual's worldviews and motivations, and of course uh, to do that in a, a way that somehow respects their privacy and autonomy. Uh, so uh, I can relate to that person exactly in the way that that person would find persuasive and genuinely helpful, uh, and in a way that helps advance that person's thinking uh, in a direction that would embrace indefinite life extension. Unfortunately, we're still only human, and we do not have that transhuman ability, and uh, I regret that to a certain extent, and various uh, multifaceted marketing and messaging efforts are probably the best we can do at this point, which is why hyperpluralism uh, is a good idea in my view. Uh, may many people try many different approaches and may the best approaches succeed. Uh, so we are running close to our two-hour time frame. Uh, I don't mind going over a little bit uh, if people have thoughts they want to share, but I also want to give the opportunity for everyone to make a, a statement that encapsulates their impressions of this discussion thus far so that we can hear from everyone at least one more time. So let's start with Keith. Okay, I'll, I'll do kind of both things. I want to quickly hit some of the topics that were just mentioned and then, uh, you know, tie it together. Uh, firstly, uh, um, 
there was some mention of kind of the democratization of science, um, and that's something that I also personally work with. I do a lot of work in uh, the Citizen Science Laboratory GenSpace in Brooklyn, and there are a lot of analogs around the country like BioCurious and, and that sort of thing, and I think that whole movement of DIY bio and biohackers could be a potential ally for, for many reasons, but also, also longevity. Uh, for example, the iGEM competition just happened, the International Genetically Engineered Machines Contest that's for synthetic biology. A lot of high schools and colleges compete. Um, I personally would like to see a version of that kind of competition created that's themed around solving actual real-world problems, one of which can be longevity. And I think that would be an excellent way to sort of outreach and also get research going on if you have teams of high school students and, and college students working on different kind of longevity research as part of a competition that's a citizen science competition. So I would like to see that, and I think that could be big going forward. Um, to address kind of the religious issue and, and how we approach it quickly again, I think as a movement, uh, you know, transhumanism, we could do better at sort of coming together and figuring out exactly what it is that we want to critique. And I think we need to get better about critiquing certain aspects of religious logic, let's say, without demonizing the whole religion and traditions, and also just by the nature of our, our meat, of living in this body and this brain. You know, People have an innate desire to want to feel a spiritual connection to the universe, to a force like the Tao in Chinese, or some creator. And I think if we try to remove that from people, we'll, we'll uh, experience a lot of pushback. So we want to still be able to, like, like you said, you know, like, as long as they're, you know, willing to be open about this idea, they're allies. And I think we need to come at it with a much more open-minded, uh, a genuine interest in people. Like, when you're talking to a religious person, don't have in your mind, this person is an idiot, let me try to convince him have in your mind, like, I'm interested in what you want to say. Let me hear your opinion. You try to convince me, and let's talk about it. Like, really genuine, open-hearted discussion, because I feel like when that's not there, people will perceive it, and it will turn everybody off. And I notice a lot of that going on. Um, so now, to kind of parlay that, that into kind of my end statement, it, it's generally about this. Is, is I feel like... Uh, we are at a really exciting time right now. If we can get a few actual therapies, you know, Liz, so, so uh, get on that. Uh, you know, if we just need like one or two of these things, and I think that will be, that coupled with a really, you know, positive message of this is exciting, this is about increasing choices, you know, even if you personally don't want to live forever or live longer, odds are somebody you know, somebody you love would really like that chance. So why not help give that person that chance? And I, I think we can really, we can reach a lot of people with that kind of message. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Keith. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, let's hear some of your uh, impressions of our discussion and follow-up statements. I would love to. So, uh, number one, I would like to open everyone's mind to uh, an idea. And it is the idea that, well, in inherently, uh, most people are spiritual um, from the get-go, at least most uh, cultural uh, civilizations before there was um, what we call religion, which is a little bit more government-run. But these are kind of the, the original immortalists. And I know you don't want to hear that, but they are. Almost every one of these religions touts immortality, even if it's after death, because it 
was the only thing that could be offered, okay? Uh, these are the same people who get pig heart valves put in their body. They get immunizations, many of them outside of, you know, groups that are very rudimentary. Um, these are uh, these are people who are, there. there is no species on Earth that I know that is just a pure lemming that jumps off a cliff, um, except for very depressed humans, which is a medical condition. Uh, it is the drive of every species to survive. And I really don't think that this is outside of the realm of these people's thinking, okay? This is why they go to church, because it's actually all about immortality in one way or another. So I don't tout immortality. I tout a disease mitigation. But I want to give a, a cute little antidote. So while I was at the SENS conference, I made a new friend named Chase Perkins, and he's the CEO of a, of a company called Thoughtly. And they have an AI that basically scans text, and you can tell it to limit how many words uh, what that text is about. So you could say, put it into a paragraph. Maybe you put uh, through a, a scientific document and it would come out and it would say, you know, about senescent cells, um, telomerase induction and blah, blah, blah. Well, he put it, uh, the Bible through uh, this uh, process and he put it down to two words so that it could only spew out two words. And, and this goes to show that we've been at this for a long time. The two words that it came out with uh, the Bible was insurance policy. <laughs> so the Bible is your insurance policy that you will actually go on to be immortal, okay? So uh, let's consider this when we think about religion. Let's not shut people out, and let's remember that there's a lot of ways to die, and one of them is through negativity, okay? Uh, so let's be positive. Let's try to uplift our, our brothers and spread the good word of, of longevity because uh, dying of disease sucks, uh, whether you do it at 10 or you do it at 99. Okay, so that touches me. Uh, so we want to we want to end that. And everyone is actually in this. Everyone's got skin in the game, and everyone's got somebody who who's going to be dying soon. And as a reminder, something that lights a fire under me. Um, this is uh, not just old people, but children too. But a hundred thousand people are going to die today. And um, you know, while we think that we're wrapping our head around bigger situations, they're 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 wrapping their head around the the biggest situation of their life. And we have to work really fast. And so if we have, you know, good research that, that shows good evidence, we should be moving forward on this. And there, there's no, uh, there's no regula regulation that should stop us past a, a safety and efficacy. And we're happy to prove that ourselves. Okay? So, you know, definitely get behind your small biotechs. Uh, you know, it's true that big institutions move very slowly. And it's one of the reasons why my company was able to uh, collaborate one of the best scientific advisory boards in this industry with uh, George Martin and George Church and other people well respected in the industry. It's because we're able to move fast and, and they're, I believe that they're hopeful that we will. Um, so um, I just want to encourage everyone to uh, stay involved. This isn't science fiction, it's science fact. Help us move forward, get excited about it. Don't be afraid to tell somebody who uh, you think that won't be able to get their head around it. If they've gotten their head around uh, things like religion and other things, they, they can get their head around one more thing. They're not stupid, they're smart, they, they want to ensure their existence as well. Uh, let's think about it that way and let's open it up. And um, I don't know, what else can I think? say? Thank goddess. <laughs> Everyone thinks God. <laughs> Thank goddess. And let's move this, this thing forward. And yes, Keith, we're, we're going to try to move forward. We're definitely going to use Lifespan.io when our, when our company is well enough known so that people will get behind it. Right now, gene therapies are super expensive. So just one person is hundreds of thousands of dollars to treat, okay? And so we know as a really small, unknown company right now that we can't get that sort of leverage, but we hope to get that in the future. And so if people keep spreading the word, again, we're, we're a very open source company.
company. Uh, we're interested in sharing uh, what we do with the world, our, our results with the world. We, we will app open our uh, test subject up to labs around the world if they're interested in getting involved. Uh, we want to open this thing up and we want to become the biosimilars and gene therapies so that we can drive those costs down immediately and get cures to you. Well, thank you very much. And we are, I think, all quite excited uh, to see what's going to happen in the next few months with your trial and hopefully, yes, hopefully uh, the more individuals, companies undertake these kinds of efforts with visible consequences, visible results, uh, that switch in many people's heads will be flipped and they will realize, oh, uh, yes, uh, I have actually wanted to live longer all this time, whatever my worldview and now it's possible. Now it's not science fiction anymore. So um, yeah, and, and you know, a lot of people have said, you know, you should wait until you get results, and you know, to to say anything. And and you know, that's a very valid thing. But on the other hand, any result is important. So if we don't, uh, that's important too. And so you know, we want to be part of the science and not part of the occlusion of of data. Absolutely. Well, thank you, uh, Rowan. Uh, would you like to offer some yes. impressions of this discussion? Yes, I, I love what Liz was just saying about the uh, religious people being like the original immortalists. That's so true, and in many ways, and in many respects, I actually feel a more common bond with religious people, despite being an atheist, just because when I talk to religious people, their motivation so much does seem to be about living forever. And I find that lacking in the atheist community. And so then it's like they are really the original immortalists. And I wish, like, like I talk to atheist people, and like sometimes you ask them and they say, they don't mind dying and ceasing to exist. They've really made peace with non-existence, where that is not true with the religious person. So it's kind of like, uh, I guess, with the problem with religion is where their insurance policy becomes a false certainty of heaven. And that's what I see with religion. It's not just an insurance policy like, okay, maybe this is plan B. If you know, It's more like they're so sure of it. They're so sure of heaven that they lose their fear of death. They have no, and it's like they want to die even. And I've talked to religious people. They're like eager to die so that they can get heaven. And I think that's really the problem because then they lose the attachment to this world. And um, and it's like they're gambling. Like for being an immortalist, for being for claiming to love their eternal life so much, they're gambling with their eternal life because everyone should admit that this is the only life that we know for sure exists and that the afterlife it's just a hypothesis that's never been proven. And so if there's any religious people that are watching this or watch this, that's the message I'd like to leave you with is that I get that you want eternal life, but you don't know that there isn't any that there is any afterlife. And so consider that in order to get eternal life, you might need to get that physically on this earth. Um, and also I would like to say to religious people is that I don't judge anyone for their beliefs. You can believe in God, you can believe in an afterlife, and I don't judge you for that beliefs. I think we should judge people based on our behaviors. I think that's way more important than judging people on their beliefs because I don't even think people can choose what they believe. If you're a religious person, I don't think a person chooses to believe in God. Their brain is just convinced of it, and it's not their fault. Just like I'm convinced that there is no God, and it's not my fault. And um, 
The other thing about another way we can maybe bring this message to religious people and get them to care about curing aging is an idea that Aubrey de Grey talks a lot about, which he said that it's a sin not to cure aging. From a religious standpoint, if you're taking your Bible seriously, there's all kinds of Bible verses that suggest that, hey, you know, you're, you're, it's your duty to alleviate suffering. And, well, old people are suffering, uh, incredibly so. And so let's, let's, let's uh, encourage religious people to think of aging in that way, where it would be a sin not to cure it. Um, you know, just like you'd look at a child with cancer, you'd feel empathy. Well, why wouldn't you have those same emotions uh, with uh, an old person? And so there's a lot of ageism in the world. There's an idea, there's a lot of just like, oh, well, they're old, they've lived their life, and it's time for them to die. We need to get rid of that and say old people have just as much of a right to live as younger people. Um, and as far as the idea that immortality is a scary word, uh, I agree that that can scare a lot of people away. And even the, even the words eternal life, like I use for the Eternal Life fan club, that can scare people away. Um, but also there's an idea that Words like immortality and eternal life and living forever, these words also inspire. They're just more inspirational. It worked for religion, right, as far as marketing. Religion probably wouldn't have gotten popular if it was just like, oh, let's extend our life a few hundred years. You know what I mean? No, religion is popular because, like Liz was saying, religion is wrapped up in the idea of immortality, eternal life, living forever. That is what's inspirational. So we can't lose sight of that. You're not living forever. That's what people want. I think in their, in their deepest heart, that's what people want. Like I was... I lectured, I, I gave a speech at People's Unlimited, and these people, they are inspired to live forever. And I know Liz gave a lecture there too. And these people are so amazing, right? Because it's like, wow, they really want to live forever. And I think that mo more people are like that than we even know. There are people out there that really are inspired by eternity, not just living 200 years, not just 500 years. They want to live forever. So I think that's one of uh, some of us transhumanists can reach out to those people. And I think that's, that's important also. Um, and then I just like to mention um, that a lot of people are afraid that these anti-aging technologies are not going to be available to everyone. And that is a huge deterrent. That's what people, they're like, why bother? Oh, that's just going to be for the rich people. So I think that the more we move towards a uh, socialism or at least a medicinal, um, medical socialism, so that everyone at least has their medical needs covered, I think that's going to alleviate a lot of these fears and that people are going to realize, okay, if these technologies do come, they are going to be for me. The government's going to take care of me. I'm not going to be left out while the rich people are getting to live forever. So we have to uh, address those concerns. Um, like Sultan Isfahan, if he was president, he talked about having a basic income. And and the, under the basic income, it would be covered like your life extension treatments would be covered. And that's, I think, the good news, that, that this is for everyone. Nobody has to die, that we're going to be reaching towards a future where there's going to be less war, less violence, global a global government where people are in peace and we can all just live and have fun forever. And I think that's the message we have to uh, inspire people with. And um, let's vote for Zoltan Isfahan. Uh, maybe he probably won't become president this time around, but maybe 10 years. Let's. Uh, I think he's doing amazing things. I think uh, his message is super inspirational. What other president is? What other presidential candidate has been? You know, really promoting transhumanism and 
you know, the idea of curing aging as much as him, nobody. So let's let's really get behind him. I think that it's important. Thank you. Well, thank you, Rowan. Uh, a lot of uh, interesting ideas here. Now, uh, I will say, uh, I myself am a libertarian. Uh, I am not a socialist, but I know someone uh, on this panel who is, uh, whom I'm going to offer the opportunity to make uh, the next statement, and that is B.J. Murphy. I appreciate it, Janati. Uh, well, you know, everyone here has made uh, several great statements, uh, especially in terms of trying to integrate uh, transhumanism with the religious community. And this is a very important uh, thing for the transhumanist community and the longevity uh, community, even as an atheist myself. Uh, and, I, and I have a lot of uh, uh, respect for people who are uh, dedicating their times to uh, emphasize on this integration of religion and transhumanism. People like Lincoln Cannon from the Mormon Transhumanist Association, he's doing a great job on, he, he does a lot of interesting work where uh, he uses uh, Bible quotations to try and help uh, convey that sense of uh, defeating aging and uh, transcending our biological limitations. And I have a lot of respect for that and respect for researchers like Franca Cortese who's written about religion and its integration with transhumanism and Martin Rothblatt. Uh, you know, these are people who really see the importance that religious community could have with uh, the uh, transhumanist community and the community who are fighting for longevity and against aging. So we, you know, pushing them away would be a, a detrimental effect to our movement. And figuring out ways where we can integrate them will be uh, a great success on our part. Uh, you know, even even if we can just use certain quotations from the Bible, you know, from the Bible or to the Holy Quran, there are many ways of which we can convey to them. Uh, you know, they're easily uh, different ways. You know, like one Corinthians fifteen twenty six, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now, that's a powerful statement to make, and if we can somehow convey that to the religious community, we could uh, get a huge movement because. The vast majority of our population are religious, whether we like it or not. And uh, but then our emphasis on uh, the the term immortality, and I I do appreciate uh, Rowan's uh, uh, statement about how immortality, the word itself, it really drives a lot of people to want to be, uh, I suppose, supportive or optimistic about where we're heading in terms of fighting against aging. But then uh, I also tend to think that immortality can also be, in, in certain contexts, could be uh, a detrimental term uh, to certain people. As linguists like Steven Pinker or Noam Chomsky uh, would note, you know, terms, certain terminologies have specific definitions. And with immortality, there are some people who I've had to deal with who have emphasized that immortality is a very authoritarian term because it emphasizes the incapability of death. Uh, incapability of death. And that is the authoritarian hold of one person cannot die no matter what. And that's not necessarily what we're saying. We're saying that each individual will have the choice to live as long as they wish, even if that includes eternity. So immortality could be specific. It could be considered a red herring uh, in terms of what we're trying to say. And I appreciate other organizations trying to figure out uh, different terms to use. Like Rowan, he uses eternal life. Uh, for the mob movement, it's indefinite life extension. For uh, Aubrey Gray, it's negligible senescence. 
uh, you know, there are many ways of which we can convey this kind of movement and excite crowds for it. Immortality isn't necessarily the only term, but we it could be used in our arsenal of terms to be used uh, and increase in popularity. It just depends on the context. So we definitely need to emphasize on that, on who we talk to, because certain, certain people are different in ways of which we have to strike up a conversation with. And for my final statement, I just want to uh, emphasize on building a movement behind this, and because there is there is going to be a lot of political pushback that is inevitable, and the only way we can uh, succeed is to push back ourselves, and we need a mass movement with that. And if we can figure out ways of creating a mass movement, and as an activist, and as Gennady mentions, I am of a socialist background, so I've done a lot of work on. Uh, trying to create mass movements for certain social justice issues and my experience is you can't succeed without the power of the people behind you fighting with you because once you have that kind of power then governments, corporations, they tend to fall back on their original statements or original actions and if we can do that with aging uh, we will finally succeed in what we've been fighting for so long since the history of uh, man itself and that is to give us indefinite life. So. Thank you, Janati. Absolutely, and thank you, BJ, as well, for that statement. One thing that has always uh, amazed me about the life extension movement is how it has blurred these kinds of traditional political distinctions. Uh, we have so many people of different political persuasions agreeing on this goal and willing to collaborate toward it, and on the other hand, how do we characterize the people who are resistant to it? They're not left-wing or right-wing or, or religious or atheistic. Perhaps the best way to characterize them is status quoist, for lack of a better term. Uh, these are people who, uh, in my view, are characterized by a certain status quo bias, uh, an idea that the way things are right now is somehow inextricably tied to human nature and insurmountable. So maybe that's the barrier we have to overcome, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, we have uh, people of a thousand different political persuasions uh, helping us out and agreeing on uh, this common task in uh, Nikolai Fyodorov's uh, language of overcoming uh, the perils of disease and death. Uh, so Sven, uh, let's hear your final statement. So um, I'm not a socialist, but I agree with what BG just said, and that is that we need to first have society change, and society will then push to have politics change. Uh, we have tried in the past to, to uh, change politics. Uh, for example, HEALS has lobbied with the European Innovation Partnership on active and healthy aging. That has failed miserably. So uh, the uh, part about the biology of aging is completely missing. At first there was a small part about it included and then it got overtaken and now it's about making sure you take your pills because keeping your pills one day might be harmful, preventing falls, how can we build age-friendly cities? Uh, and, you know, like that's not going to bring us anywhere near to have healthy life extension. Um, so first the public needs to change, the public needs to say we want to have healthy life extension and then politics will follow what the public demands. Uh, with regards to religion, I'm an atheist, 
but I also think that when it comes to healthy life extension, we shouldn't try to push people away. We should try to include. Uh, so if people are religious and you know they are in favor of healthy life extension, let's make allies of them um, and work together to have aging defeated. Um, for um, yeah, coming back to the thing that I say we, we need societal change first. Well, for that, I think it's very important that we show that aging is a malleable process, that we are able to extend lifespan. That's really crucial because too many people today are still believing that aging is a process that is too complex for us to in, uh, intervene in. And that's something that has to change. Now, of course, I fully admit science is very hard to do. Uh, so it's not going to be easy to solve aging, but it can be done, I believe, and we need to tell the people that it can be done. Um, we need definitely more funding for aging research. I think that can be, come from all sources, private, government, uh, crowdfunding, and I think all of these sources have their own pros and cons attached to them. Uh, government funding is of course huge compared to any other source of funding, but it tends to go to more incremental progress projects uh, rather than the far-out projects that are tend to be more funded by private crowdfunding type of sources, which are smaller but available to different types of research. Uh, so all funding for life extension research is positive. That's the conclusion of that one. And when it comes to, to the problem of our um, fear of uh, that things that we might do are harmful, the precautionary principle, it's very important we tell the public there is a much bigger fear, uh, a much bigger risk of not doing something, right? We all have a terminal disease, aging, right? Uh, and, and so the risk of not doing anything is certain death. That's something that we should understand uh, and that the public should understand. And to end, I just want to again remind the people to participate in Calmont's Day on the 21st of February as another event to push forward this important uh, topic of life extension. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Sven. Chocolate and olive oil, I'll keep that in mind. And uh, I encourage our viewers also to partake and consume these items. Uh, <laughs> even if you don't usually consume these items, it won't hurt uh, on that particular date. Uh, I will, definitely. And I definitely appreciate uh, your extensively researched presentation and your uh, measured objective remarks today, Sven. Uh, I think you're doing a great job in terms of uh, advocating for life extension and advocating for uh, greater public support uh, for life extension research. So please keep up the good work. Now, uh, I left the opportunity uh, for the last word uh, to a person who I know has uh, the ability to conclude with a flourish. So, uh, Anna Malanzi, uh, let's hear your concluding flourishes on uh, our discussion.
Hello? Oh, sorry. The microphone was off. I didn't want any background noise. Uh, ruining the recording. But what I wanted to tell everyone is that these networks we have now have enabled us to do amazing things. Had it not been for the internet and for Facebook, I would have never discovered the life extension movement. You and I would have never met. Had it not been for my podcast, which I created on a whim, and Kira's post on LinkedIn, I would have never met Liz, and she wouldn't be here on the panel right now. What I'm saying, and this is also in rebuttal to Peter's questions or comments or whatever you want to call them, is that small things can make an enormous difference in the long run, and this is the beauty of emergent properties in any system. And that's why we, well, why freedom is such a wonderful thing and why we should do everything within our power to guarantee liberty, but also use our powers of freedom to persuade others and realize what they should be doing and what they should be thinking. Now, they're free to disagree, of course, but we have logic, reason, and virtually everything on our side, except for time. And this is a very time-sensitive issue, which is why the urgency that's been expressed here by all of the panelists is so appropriate. It's not a joking matter, and unfortunately we have to joke about it just to get through the day, get through our lives. But when we sit down and we begin to think about it, we realize it is the sword of Damocles that hangs over all of our heads. Absolutely. Well, Adam, thank you very much. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. I really appreciate everyone coming on this panel and spending two and a half hours discussing uh, the extremely important topic of how can we get more public support and acceptance and progress in the area of life extension. So thank you very much. With that, I bid my panelists and my readers a good day.